0: Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians three sixteen through 17 over you.
1: Natalie here. Thank you so much for tuning in for the teaching of our Hosea study. We've got just a few sessions left before the podcast team takes their summer break. I wanted to let you know about a special event we have coming up in September. This podcast is going to celebrate its second birthday this fall, and we're planning our very first live podcast recording. We wanted you, our podcast listeners, to be the first to know. More details about how to get tickets will be coming soon, but for now, mark Saturday night, September 22nd, on your calendars and plan to join us. Now it's time to get back to Hosea. This is Session 6, Chapters 8 through 10. Tonight, we've got a couple of sections, um, If you did try outlining, you'll know that it was hard to do. So um, we're just splitting up by the chapters tonight. So chapter 8, Israel's self-reliance results in punishment. Chapter 9, Israel's sin results in loss. And chapter 10, Israel's opportunity to seek the Lord. And then we'll finish up with homework. So last week, if you'll remember, we walked through Hosea 6 and 7. We talked about how God wants our hearts and not just our religious actions. We walked through some pictures of unfaithful Israel. We talked about God's steadfast Hasid love and how he wants that kind of love from us, but we just can't give it to him fully. And only in Christ can we begin to return God's Hasid love back to him. So tonight, God's going to continue addressing the specific issues that he has with Israel's self-reliance. He's laying out the full case for why they do, in fact, deserve punishment and exile. And we're going to start with chapter 8, but first let me pray. Father, this uh, has been a difficult set of chapters to read. Um, It's been difficult uh, to see the judgment you are or you did uh, proclaim over the Israelites. Um, It's been difficult to see how serious... Uh, the punishments are for sin. It's been hard um, to walk through some metaphors that, that are, um, and some, not metaphors, just facts about your judgment that um, that touch us specifically as women. So God, tonight I just pray that your spirit would be in this place. You would help us to continue to seek you even though um, these passages are hard. That we would press in, that um, we would press on to know you past uh, our doubts and our questions, um, and continue seeking you so that we can reap steadfast love like you promised that we will. So we pray tonight that that would begin to happen in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, I'm going to read Hosea 8 to you all straight through. Okay, chapter 8, starting verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. "'To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. "'Israel has spurned the good. "'The enemy shall pursue him. "'They made kings, but not through me. "'They set up princes, but I knew it not. "'With their silver and gold, "'they made idols for their own destruction. "'I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. "'My anger burns against them. "'How long will they be incapable of innocence? "'For it is from Israel. "'A craftsman made it. "'It is not God.' The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it up. Israel is swallowed up, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute." Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces." And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So we start out with the trumpet again. God's calling his people to attention. This shows us how little that they are listening to God. He's asking them over and over, listen, pay attention, hear. He is desperate to warn them and encourage them to turn back and turn to him. He says it's like there's a vulture circling over God's house. Vultures only circle and descend on animals that are already dead. The people of God are dead in their sins and the vulture of God's punishment in the form of the Assyrian military is about to swoop down on them. God goes back and forth throughout this chapter from sin to punishment, sin to punishment, back again. So rather than work through verse by verse here, I've picked out six categories of sin and punishment that I see God covering in this passage. The first one is self-made law. Now, we've already discussed this at length, but God repeats again in chapter 8 that Israel broke their covenant with him. They rebelled against the law. They act like they know God, but they make their own rules instead of following his. They're confused, misguided, delusional even. Verse 12 says they don't recognize his law. It's strange to them. Even if he wrote 10,000 laws for them, they would look like foreign language. God summarizes by saying that Israel has spurned, in other words, rejected, the good. That's verse 3. They don't know God's law, and so they don't know what good is. Now, our society has also rejected what God calls good. I happened to hear the chorus of a song on the radio last week called Most People Are Good by Luke Bryan. Maybe you've heard it. It stopped me in my tracks because it's so backwards from what we believe as followers of Jesus and what God has laid out in his word, but it's a perfectly normal thought for many people in our culture. The chorus that I heard goes like this. It said, I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights, and I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Now, here's what I think an ancient Israelite version of this song might sound like. I believe most Israelites are good, and most mamas will have more babies if they'll just sacrifice one to Baal. And I believe most Friday nights look better under the glow of the golden calf, and I believe you love whichever God will provide for you. Ain't nothing you should be ashamed of. I believe this world will look better with just a few more fortified cities that keep us safe. And I believe most Baal worshippers are good. Heck, I believe most Assyrians are good too. The point I'm trying to get out here is that What they think is good is not. They think that they are following God, but they aren't. They are confused about what the Lord requires because they don't really know him. If they don't know him, how can they know what he requires? They're doing what is right and good in their own eyes and not in the eyes of the Lord. So, the punishment that God proclaims over this uh, is at the end of verse 3. He responds to this creation of their own definition of good. By saying that the enemy, an enemy is going to pursue them. God's going to act as the true judge, the true definer of what is right, and he's going to send Assyria to overtake them. The next category of self reliance that we see is self made government. We find this in verse four. God's addressing their impulses to set up their own kings without consulting him. In Deuteronomy 17, God says clearly that he is the one who chooses kings. Daniel 2.21 famously says he removes kings and he sets up kings. He is in control of this king thing. When God says in verse 4, they set up princes, but he knew it not, he's using a play on words. He's referring back to verse 2 where the Israelites said they knew him, but they really didn't. He's flipping the script there. So why does God care so much about who is king? He cares because he knows how influential leaders are and how well-designed we are to be followers. He made us to be worshipers, and we are easily led astray by people in power. He also cares a ton about keeping someone king from the line of David because he made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. He promised that someone from David's line would be on the throne forever. God cares about the line of David because that's what line Jesus, our forever king, is going to be born into. So God's response here, the punishment, is that he's going to reject the golden calf in Bethel, the calf that was originally made by one of their leaders. It was a leader's idea. Now that takes us right into the next point, a self-made God. Now we're well aware the Israelites have made idols for themselves The calf, likely described here in verse 5, specifically one of the golden calves set up by King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. He wanted to keep the Israelites in the north from traveling down south to Judah to worship in Jerusalem, so he sets up two golden calves. You can read more about that in 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33. God says, Israel has forgotten their maker. God is the maker of all things, and more specifically, the maker of the nation of Israel. This goes back to what we saw in verse 1 about thinking that people thinking that they knew God, but God says otherwise. God's refrain over and over in the Old Testament is for his people to remember what he has done. He knows that we are forgetful. He sent prophets, he sent priests and kings to every generation to give them reminders, but still, These Israelites have forgotten him again. Consider the sobering words of Jesus on this topic in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God responds here to their forgetfulness with anger. He says he rejects the calf and he's going to break it. He's the only true God. He will not tolerate his set-apart people worshiping anything else. He wants them to really know him. The fourth Area of self-reliance we see is self-made religion. The Israelites took a little bit of God's law, a little bit of Canaanite tradition, and made their own religion. They built altars, and instead of using them for sin offerings to be made clean before God, they used them for sin and became defiled. As these altars multiplied, so did their sin. They were too focused on the mechanics of worship and not enough on the heart behind it. I resonated with um, a commentator, Derek Kidner, his comments on the passage. He says, It seems to be an occupational disease of worshippers to think more of the mechanics than the meaning of what we do, more of getting it right than getting ourselves right. And this can degenerate from thoughtlessness into something worse, ranging from cynical detachment if we're sophisticated to religious superstition if we are not. What the prophets show us is heaven's strong reaction to such attitudes That this parody of worship is not simply valueless, as we might have guessed, but insulting and even sickening to God, attracting the very judgment it is supposed to avert. And that's what we see in God's response. The judgment they're trying to avoid is the judgment that they will get. God will not accept their sacrifices. God will remember and punish their sin. And he repeats the same phrase again. In chapter 9, this is a reversal of the famous 1st Jeremiah 31-34 that says, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. This is the very opposite. God also says they're going to return to Egypt. And the use of Egypt in these chapters is a symbolic way to say that the exodus is going to be reversed. They're going to go back into exile. We'll see more on that in the next chapter. The fifth area... um, Self-sought allies. We've talked a little bit about this so far, but Israel was determined to protect herself in any way that she could. Verse 9 says they went up to Assyria like a wild donkey and acted towards the nations around them like they were lovers for hire. They were searching for security and protection, and they were going to do anything and go just about anywhere except for God to find it. The Hebrew words donkey and Ephraim have the same consonants, so this is a pun. Israel is restless and wild, looking for a partner, running wherever she pleases. This is the same idea we talked about last week when Israel was described as a silly bird, flying back and forth from nation to nation. This is just another way to say that. And God's declared punishment here is that Israel is going to be consumed by the very nations that she's trying to find her security in. Verse 10 also says Israel would be gathered up by God. And what I interpret this to mean is that God's reminding them that he is in control. He's the only one that can move them from place to place, and he's the one with the power, not the nations that they are pursuing. The last area of self-reliance uh, is self-made fortresses. This is how the chapter ends, talking about Israel building palaces and fortified cities. This is just another manifestation of them looking for safety and security. They're literally building up walls around themselves, trying to stay safe instead of asking God for protection. They're busy building, but not with the Lord. Psalm 127 tells us what? This kind of labor is in vain. Psalm 127, the first two verses, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He keeps us safe. Human effort alone will not keep us safe. God's the only true stronghold, and he calls us to trust in his protection. So God's answer to this their building campaign is to destroy their cities and we have a record of this happening second kings 18 god can't allow his people to go on thinking that they are self-sufficient he has to break down what they've built so they they can see that he is the great creator and protector verse seven summarizes all this for us for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind they have sown worthless things and they will reap trouble and calamity They are a useless vessel, once formed by God and meant to show his glory, but now discarded. But still in the midst of this, God cries out, how long? In verse 5, he is still emotionally invested. How long are they going to continue this? How long will they be incapable of innocence, he says. And We see the same kind of cry in Revelation 6 from the martyrs under the altar of God says they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the cry of our hearts as well when we see injustice happening on our sinful world and when we examine our own hearts and find them uglier than we realized. Without a Savior, we're incapable of innocence, cleanness, guiltlessness. But a Savior did come. And on the cross, Jesus substituted his perfect life for ours, and our guilt became his, and his innocence became ours. So as we look over these six areas of self-sufficiency, I know I rattled through them pretty quickly, the law, government, gods, religion, allies, and fortresses. How might these translate to us today? What kinds of questions can we ask ourselves to see if we're trying to do our life in our own strength I'll start us off with just a few. Am I adding any rules to God's law that don't exist? Am I requiring myself or people in my life to meet a set of standards that are merely my personal preferences? Am I trying to take control of my own life in any way? Am I overly focused on a certain job or plan that I think will give me that control? Do I put too much emphasis on the power of our government or social structures to save people? Am I placing anything above God in my life? Love, status, money, life plans, health, happiness, or something else? Have I forgotten God and placed my focus on something else to give me what I want? Am I dissatisfied with the way my church operates in any way? Am I more concerned with the way we worship than the worship itself? Am I placing too much emphasis on relationships in my life? Do I run to family or friends for advice or provisions or care before I talk to God about it? And lastly, am I trying to build my own house? Have I been trusting in my own strength or ability to keep me safe? Do I go to God when I feel scared and allow him to protect me or do I try to build up walls on my own? My prayer for us tonight is that we would not be crushed by the weight of our sin, but that we would see just how desperately we need Jesus in every moment for everything. (laughs) That we cannot do this life on our own, that we need him, and thanks be to God we have him. So let this exercise, these questions, move you forward toward our Lord and not away from him. He is ready to receive you. He is ready to renew you. Oops, those were those verses, but just, there we go. Chapter 9. I'm going to read chapter 9 to you guys. Verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad, because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and, consecrate and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds I will drive them out of my house I will love them no more all their princes are rebels Ephraim is stricken their root is dried up they shall bear no fruit even though they give birth I will put their beloved children to death my God will reject them because they have not listened to them. they shall be wanderers among the nations this is hard hard Chapter 9 starts out with a warning. They should not be celebrating. They should be mourning, for their sin is great. The focus of this chapter is all the things that the Israelites are going to lose, the greatest of which is the land that they were living in. As it says in verse 7, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The harvest of judgment is here. So the first thing they will lose is their provisions. Verse 1 says that Israel has loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. The threshing floor was this large, round, flat area where harvest grain was crushed, was crushed by animals or by people. And the Israelites had adopted the Canaanite practice of performing their ritual sex acts there on these threshing floors in order to call forth the good harvest. God is condemning this. He's taking away their provisions. And he says that the threshing floor won't feed them anymore. And neither will the wine vat. This goes back to Hosea chapter 2 where God said that he would take the grain and the wine back from his people. The second thing removed is the promised land. This is the big one. He's saying you're going back into exile. You're not going to remain in the land. You'll return to Egypt symbolically and Assyria. Leviticus 25 tells us that this has always been true, says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. Verse 6 says they're going away from destruction, which sounds not so bad, right? But the very next line says Egypt is going to gather them and bury them. Memphis is another word for Egypt. This sounds like a death sentence we jump to verse 15, and God says he's going to drive them out of his house. He says he began to hate them in Gilgal because of their wickedness. God cannot be near sin, and so he, they have to leave. And I want to make sure we talk about this, the word hate here. We should take it as an announcement of the break-off of their relationship, the suspension of their marriage. It's like he is seeking, he's saying... This is where I put my foot down, or this is where I changed direction. He's marking that this, there was a change at this point. God gives another declaration at the end of the chapter that they are going to be wanderers among the nations, is verse 17. There'll be sojourners, refugees, those who flee, those who are chased away. And Moses told them this was going to happen back in Deuteronomy 28. He said, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, From one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall not find respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, and failing eyes, and a languishing soul. It is a bleak future for the Israelites. The third loss is their paths to holiness. We scoop back to verse three. God says that they're going to eat unclean food in Assyria and that they won't be able to make the right sacrifices to God. In other words, they won't have any way to get clean before God. So God's reinforcing again by taking away the sacrificial system that what He really wants is what? Their hearts. When He says their sacrifice is going to be like mourners' bread, He's saying the same thing. Mourners were not supposed to eat bread because they were associated with dead bodies. And so touching dead bodies made someone unclean, and any food that they touched would be unclean and unacceptable, a sacrifice to God. So God is saying all of their sacrifices, everything they bring to him is going to be like mourner's bread to him, unclean. Their festivals are going to be like funerals. No way to return to the Lord, no way to get holy again. The next thing is their precious items. Verse 6, their material goods. God says nettles and thorns are going to grow up over their precious things and pierce their tents. Thorns are a sign of the curse of Genesis 3. They're prickly, painful, stinging. Our own Savior experienced the pain of thorns during his crucifixion. The curse will touch everything that they hold dear. Now this next point is, the last two, very difficult. Israel's going to lose their fertility and their future generations. We know how important fertility was to these Israelites. Their very survival as a nation was at stake if they didn't continue the family line. God uses extremely strong language in this chapter on the topic of children. He says in verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 11, Ephraim's glory, and when he talks about Ephraim's glory, he's talking about their children. That's what they glory in. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them. That word means to make them childless or to make them miscarry. I will bereave them until none is left. God is removing their fruitfulness as a people. They are desperate to be strong in this area, desperate enough to leave God for Baal. And so God must break down their fertility idol. Woe to them indeed. Verse 13 is a little bit difficult to interpret, but I think what God is saying is that Israel's family line was once steady, rooted, growing like a palm tree that's planted in a meadow. But now it will be uprooted and the children will be cut off. In verse 14, Hosea calls out, perhaps this is a prayer of his, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Why would Hosea ask God to give them this? And why would God say in verse 16 that he would put their children to death? One answer would be to bring them to a point of desperation. To bring them to a point where they recognize that they need something outside of themselves. And to bring them to a point of repentance. Now I know that in a room this size, we have a great variety of life experiences. There are women who have given birth and women who have not. Women who have experienced miscarriage and women who have not. Women who have struggled to feed their babies and women who have not. And women who have lost children and women who have not. And so I wanna be sensitive to that and say that if this is a painful topic for you, I am sorry, deeply sorry. And I also want to say that I don't believe that this chapter is telling us that barrenness or miscarriage or dry breasts or the death of a child should always be considered a punishment from God. So please hear me on that. But what I do believe that is in this particular instance, God has chosen to take away fertility and the future generations very purposefully. These judgments have the possibility of helping the Israelites to remember God and know that no Him as they once knew him. He's taking away their ability to raise and provide for children on their own because this is exactly what they thought that they were getting from Baal. God must break off that line of thinking in a drastic way. Verse 16 describes Israel as a barren, beat down, dried up, fruitless people. And isn't that just how it feels to be a woman who is struggling with fertility or struggling to feed her baby? I think something that could help us to frame this passage is to remember something we talked about last week. We talked about God viewing the children of this generation as children of Baal and not children of Israel anymore. And so if we apply that thinking to this judgment, God is cutting off the so-called line of Baal. And God mentions Baal Peor in verse 10. Peor is the place where Israel began to worship Baal. The thing of shame is Baal. And now they have become detestable like him. I'm not trying to explain away the horrifying nature of this passage. It's difficult for us to consider as women, um, really as humans and image bearers of God, but I want to remind us that God is not only a God who closes wombs, but he is also a God who opens them. So I'm thinking of God opening Leah and Rachel's wombs at specific times in Genesis, and Sarah and Elizabeth and Hannah. God has a purpose in the way that He gives life and the time that he gives life. So let us not blanketly apply this to all of life. Let's keep it in its cultural context. The last thing that God says he's going to remove is his preferential love. Verse 15 says, quite frankly, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. We've talked a lot about the word love so far, and this is an unsettling phrase. And it might seem inconsistent with the rest of Hosea's message. But the key to understanding this is to look up the definition. This love is not the Hesed love that we've been talking about. Not the steadfast covenant love. Not the binding, unconditional love. This is the preferential Love. We talked about back in chapter 3 when God called Hosea to buy back Gomer to prefer her. And this is the same root as the word used for lovers in Hosea when he's talking about Israel preferring Baal over God. So we can take this as God's ironic response to their preferential love of Baal. God is departing from them, but we know from our previous study and from history that he's not leaving them forever. He will wait until they return with repentant hearts, and then he will gladly receive them. Each one of us here who follows Jesus knows for certain that God is a lover of rebels, amen, because we were all rebels. Now, this chapter is heartbreaking, and that is okay. It's all right for us to sit in that, and we should. But this is not the last word for Abraham's descendants, and it's not the last word for us. I don't have time to go into it now, but if you're interested at all in this topic, go read Romans 11, see what Paul has to say about the future of Israel. Basically, in a nutshell, he says that God's always going to keep a remnant of Israel. He's going to graft the Gentiles into it through Christ, and one day all of Israel will be saved. Lydia Brownback describes our great hope as Christians in this way. She says, in Christ, we can enjoy God's presence with no fear of banishment. That's a promise for us. We don't have to be afraid. Nevertheless, we live as if the opposite is true. We try to please God with our deeds out of fear that he's not going to accept us. We try to earn his love or hold on too tightly to his gifts, thinking that we have to do all the right things to keep them. Let me put it to you with some more questions. What are you afraid to lose? What are you afraid to let go of? What are you holding on to with all your might, whether it's something you have now or an idea of something that you want in the future? What are you afraid that God won't give to you? Is it provisions, job, home, food, health? Is it your personal promised land, the ideal home or city or living situation? Is it something precious like your reputation or your outward appearance, your spending money or your time? Maybe it's a tradition or a certain way of doing things that you don't want to budge on. Could it be a spouse, a family member, a child, or your ability to have a child? Or does it go even deeper past all the material things? Are you afraid to lose the love of God? Or are you afraid that you never actually had it, that he doesn't actually prefer you and he just tolerates you? Sisters, I beg you tonight to just pry open your fingers one by one and lay down whatever that you are afraid of. Lay down what you are afraid to lose before the Lord. Even if it's something crazy, even if it's something scary to say, or even if it's something that you've already said to him a million times, just tell him because he already knows. Say it out loud. Write it down, whatever. Release it to him. Allow him to meet that fear with perfect love and comfort. And allow him to speak what is true over you and give you the gift of his presence, which he will never remove from us if we are in Christ. Allow him to heal you in the deepest places. That's what he wants to do. Chapter 8 and 9 have made it clear for us Israel is a mess. And chapter 10 tells us even more about the extent of that mess. But... It also gives us a little nugget of hope in verse 12. The Israelites still have an opportunity to change their ways. Let's walk through chapter 10 together. This one is a little easier to walk through verse by verse than the other two. So I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine. That yields his fruit. The more his fruit has increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Okay, so Israel is a spreading vine. In chapter 9, God said Israel was like grapes in the wilderness when he found them. Like the first fruit on the fig tree. So, these once delicious, refreshing, desirable fruits are now sour. The thing that is sprouting and spreading now is Israel's sin. The comparison is similar to the hot oven, comparison of last week, where sin was growing and growing. So, they are like a creeping and spreading vine, producing more and more sinful fruit. God says the more sin increased, the more altars were built. And as they experienced prosperity, they used their wealth to improve their pillars. Prosperity is dangerous. It makes us think that we can manage life on our own. It makes us think we can have anything we want or need because we have the money to buy it. It makes us forget our provider. Proverbs 30 says it this way, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. May we be women who are marked with gratefulness, both when we are abundantly blessed by God and when we are feeling lack. May we remember our God always and view our money as his money May we invest all we have in his kingdom, the kingdom that endures and not the fleeting kingdoms of this world or the kingdoms of our own making. So if Israel is a sinful vine, what is its root? God says in verse 2, their heart is false. Other translations say faithless, divided, or spread out. Again, God connects the problem back with their hearts. God cannot stand by and allow his people to worship false gods. So he says he'll destroy all those expensive pillars and altars. Is there any hope for the vine of Israel to become fruitful again? On its own, there is not. But there is another vine coming, an everlasting vine. A vine that actually does produce good fruit, the best fruit. The only fruit that endures and that vine is Jesus. Hear his words in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. More on what this looks like practically in a bit. I'm going to take us into verses 3 and 4. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words, with empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. So Israel's own human attempts at judgment have failed. Israel has a history of desiring human leaders and disregarding God as their true king, as we talked about earlier. We see this throughout the time of the judges and in the book of 1 Samuel, especially in chapter 12. We see them here in Hosea trying to execute justice on their own. They're making empty oaths and covenants, trying to take matters into their own hands. And God says their human judgment is like poisonous weeds. The prophet Amos echoes this sentiment in Amos 5-7 where he cries, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. The same Hebrew word that's used for weeds is used for wormwood there. The idea is that their version of justice is bitter and corrupt. God also speaks in Romans 2 about the dangers of taking judgment into our own hands. We must remember that he is the true and final judge. Verse five: The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven; its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejected—sorry, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory—for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So we've got a section of mourning here. Mourning, the loss of idols, kings, and high places. A little repeat of what we saw in the last chapter. So God's describing the people and priests that are grieving the loss of the golden calf as God takes it away. Verse 6 says it's going to be taken to the king of Assyria as a gift. The irony, of course, is that the calf itself is so powerless that it has to be picked up and carried away. He uses more ironic language here in verse 5, referring back to an incident when the Ark of the Covenant was taken away in 1 Samuel 4. He uses the same language that describes his people mourning his glory departing from them to talk about this generation mourning over a useless metal cow. The comparison he makes could not be more stark. Their false religion has failed them. Baal is proved ineffective and powerless by the breaking of his idol. And God says the people are going to be ashamed of the idol. They'll be ashamed of what they have done. There is a strong connection between sin and shame. We know deep within us when we are doing something that honors God and when we are not. The Israelites would experience that feeling of shame when they saw their idol carried away. Not only would they lose their beloved idol, but they'll lose their king and their worship sites too. Verse 7 says the king will disappear like a twig floating away on the face of the water. The high places will be destroyed And we see another mention of thorns coming up to cover their altars. And these events are going to so affect them that they'll cry out for the mountains and hills to cover them. They're going to feel lost and desperate, either for protection from judgment or for the judgment just to come quickly and spare them any more suffering. This verse is quoted in Luke 23:30 when Jesus is talking about the coming invasion of the Romans. And then we see it again in Revelation 6, in the final judgment. And man, it's powerful. It says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? No one can escape God's judgment. We are no match for the creator of the rocks and the mountains. What can we take away from all of that? Simply this, idols cannot endure because they are not divine. In some ways, this is good news because we know that in Christ, we're someday going to be set free from the tyranny of idols. But as we await that day, we're going to experience, like the Israelites, the pain that comes with removing them. It is difficult, and there is often mourning involved. But God has a richer, truer life ahead for us as we more fully embrace him as Lord and King and Lover. Verse 9. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them and the nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. God's going to discipline them when he is ready. He mentions the city of Gebeah here. He's already alluded to this place earlier in chapter 9. And this city is a reminder of the gravity of Israel's sin. The full episode is described in Judges 19 through 21. Maybe some of you found it this week and read through it. What happened there was a brutal rape and a murder of a Levite's concubine. Levites shouldn't have concubines in the first place. But she was killed. Her body was cut up into 12 pieces and sent out to the 12 tribes of Israel. A civil war broke out in response to all of this, which almost wiped out the whole tribe of Benjamin. It was an outrageous thing, a horrifying thing. And here in Hosea, God's saying that their sin has only grown from there. Gebeah was just the beginning of their horrible sin. Israel has not moved from this pattern of behavior. And God suggests that there's another war coming for this generation of unjust Israelites. He says he'll punish them when he is ready, and that this time the surrounding nations are going to be part of that judgment. Now here comes our little bit of hope, sisters. Verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Back in Hosea 4, 16, if you remember, God described Israel as a stubborn cow that wouldn't follow him here he's looking back to the old days like he is when he talks about grapes in the wilderness and he's saying Israel used to be like a trained cow that enjoyed obedience we already talked about what the threshing floor is sometimes people would do threshing with tools and other times animals would do it threshing was a relatively light task for a cow the animal would not be muzzled it would be free to eat so Israel was like that obeying the Lord and enjoying the freedoms that came with that And when God says he spared her fair neck, I think he means he spared her from the harder, more painful work during that time. She responded well to his training, and so he didn't need to yoke her. But now he says he will have to put the yoke on. Other translations use the word ride instead of yoke, which would suggest that God is saying he has to take full control and ride Israel. Israel. God initially spared Israel from this arrangement, but now he has to discipline them and train them. He says that they must plow, which is harder work than threshing. He says that they must harrow, which is another word for plowing or breaking up the ground to make it ready for planting. Returning to the Lord after years of idol worship will be hard work for them. It will be difficult for them to trust God at first. It will be difficult for them to change their habits, to stop going to the places they used to go and spending time with the people they used to spend time with and doing the activities that they once did. God is warning them that it will literally be a hard road. This leads us right into verse 12 where God says that Israel must do the hard work of plowing up the ground and when they do, when the ground is ready they must plant something very specific, righteousness. This word is also translated justice. So if the people faithfully plant justice, if they place a high value on doing what is right in God's eyes, God promises that what will be produced, what will grow, is chesed. Steadfast love. Here's another connection between obedience and love. Do what is right. Love is the response. Seek the Lord in love. Obedience will follow. We know this is not what they have done up to this point. God said that they were planting wind and getting whirlwind back in chapter 8. And here in verse 13, he says they've planted sin and gotten injustice and eaten rotten fruit. They've trusted in their own way, which is vastly different than the picture that he gives us of righteousness and love that he's calling them to in verse 12. It's as if he is saying, plant something worthwhile, please. Plant what is right. And Paul echoes this idea in Galatians 6. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So this sowing and reaping principle applies to us as well. It is impossible for us to escape. Our actions have consequences the intentions that we plant with, will be shown by the fruit of our life. Tim Chester expands on this. He says, you reap what you sow. You cannot neglect the means of grace that God has provided and then expect to harvest good fruit in your life. You cannot indulge your sinful desires and then wonder why you are not becoming more like Jesus. Paul says that those who sow to the sinful nature will reap destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, then a different story emerges. Every action is one step towards a habit. The question is, what kind of habit? Is it a habit of the flesh or a habit of the spirit? How do we go about sowing to the spirit, as Paul suggests? I suggest we plant the gospel. We plant Jesus. We make daily use of the ways God's given us to engage with him. The word of God, prayer, worship, community, discipleship. We make investments that have eternal value. We seek first the kingdom of God in all our decisions, big or small. God wants this from the Israelites. He wants them to seek him. And to seek him means that he is their first resort, not the last one. He is the place that they frequent, the place that they go for wisdom and life. This is essential to the message of Hosea, return to the Lord. Seek him. Pursue him like he pursues you. Time is short. And when they do, he will come and rain righteousness on them. He wants to pour out righteousness that covers them completely. I love this. He asks them to plant righteousness. And then he says he's going to rain righteousness. He's going to make their little patch of righteousness grow by the power of his own righteousness. And this is true for us too in Christ. When we choose to partner with the Spirit, the Spirit makes things grow. He produces the fruit As we read earlier in John 15, it is our job just to abide. We abide, we agree with Christ, we rely on Him for nourishment and growth during seasons of pruning. Simply stay connected to Jesus, our vine. Trust in the Father, our vine dresser. He can be trusted, He knows what He's doing. We'll finish out the last three verses. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Hashalman destroyed Beth Arbal on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Whew. God closes out the chapter with this bit about misplaced trust in military power. He's revealing yet another area that they are trusting in their own way. They've believed in the power of a big military to keep them safe. But God again declares that war will come and their strong fortresses will be destroyed. Now this reference to Shalman is likely a reference to 2 Kings 17. There was a brutal destruction there and God says that that will happen to Israel. He refers to Bethel, which is the place where one of the golden calves was because of their evil ways. And he ends with a reminder that he's already appointed a time for the king to die, just as he mentioned in verse 7. Man, we have wrestled with some difficult themes tonight. We don't end on a happy note. I expect the Holy Spirit has been at work perhaps convicting you in some areas, comforting you in others. But I want us to just rest on these three things tonight, these three truths for the Christian, to kind of sum up where we've been tonight. Christ is all-sufficient, even when we act self-sufficient. We can never lose God's favor, even when we fear he will take the things we love most away. And Jesus will be the one to produce fruit in us, even when we act as if it is all up to us. Jesus can be trusted. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to work for his approval. We don't have to fear his discipline. God loves us and he wants good for us, just like he did for the Israelites. He was desperate for them to seek him to break up their fallow ground and return to their loving covenant. So right now, together, let's plant something worthwhile. Let's plant a little bit of prayer. Let's cry out to our God, our all-sufficient God, and choose him together, seek him together, and ask him for help and trusting and abiding in him and loving him. Pray with me. Father, this prayer we hope is a little seed. Planting a little bit of righteousness together. Coming to you and saying that. Whatever our actions say. If we're followers of Jesus in this room, we do want to seek you. We do want to follow you. We do want to return to you, God. Forgive us for our self-sufficiency. Pry our hands off the things we're afraid to lose. Help us to see that we are not the vine dressers. We're just branches. Help us to abide when the pruning comes. And be near to us when the pruning comes and help us to abide in you, Lord. Teach us what that means. Help us to seek you. Would you cover our little scenes of righteousness with the rain of righteousness from heaven? God, would you comfort any of the women in this room who struggle with difficult themes in these chapters? would you remind them of your love, your steadfast covenant love, your chesed love? And remind them that that love will never be taken away because you're a promise keeper and you can't break your promise. And that love is the one you promised to us. But we pray too that we would feel your preferential love and that we would prefer you like you prefer us. And we know that we can only do that by the power of the Spirit. So fill us with your Spirit. Help us to make choices that honor you. Help us to be obedient, Lord, out of pure hearts who have been with Jesus and just want to make him happy. And we know that when you look at us, you are because you see Jesus. And so we can rest. And we can listen and just wait for you to tell us what to do next. We love you, Lord. Do a new thing. Plant a new thing in the lives of each of these women tonight. And help us to be attentive as it grows and to praise you when we see fruit. And to attribute that fruit always to you. Not to ourselves. We thank you in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Homework. Homework time. This one's easier, you guys. All the usual things, just two chapters this week 11 and 12. Make your notes, answer your questions if you like. Do the response questions handout if you want to. And then this week's tool is paraphrasing. Don't be scared. Paraphrasing sounds scary because nobody wants to put God's words into their own words because they're already God's words and they're so great and perfect and why would we want to put them in our own words? Just set that aside and give it a try. Um, Imagine that you are just trying to explain to a friend what you just read. Or explain to a child what you just read. We've asked you just to do the first nine verses of Hosea. And if you want to do more or less, that's up to you. But paraphrase is a powerful tool. It really helps you to grasp what's being said in the passage. We'll do teacher talk about it this week sometime. And if you have any questions, of course, you can always ask. But don't be afraid of paraphrase. Just try it. Nobody has to see it except you. Except maybe one of the questions next week is to read it to a partner. (laughs) But if you really don't want to, it's fine. You can keep it to yourself. But why keep God's truth to yourself? I'm just saying. Okay. Paraphrase away. Have a great week. Love to you all.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's word, visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in his word today, sister.